We all want happy, healthy families, and that quest for good health begins at birth. Sadly, many of our nation's infants have a much more difficult journey reaching their first birthday than other infants. African-American babies, for instance, are as much as two and a half times less likely to reach their first birthday than Caucasian babies. This disturbing disparity has given rise to a national forum, a forum wherein healthcare professionals, birth workers, policymakers, and family planning experts share information and ideas to combat the scourge of black infant mortality and maternal morbidity. Welcome to the GAP Podcast Series. Welcome to the GAP Podcast Series. Before we get into the two extraordinary guests that we have in studio today, I want to read a paragraph to you. According to the Children's Rights and Child Welfare Organizations in the U.S., there are 443,000 children awaiting adoption in our country. The state of Texas website indicates that there are 29,000 children in this state who are in the foster care system and 3,378 are awaiting adoption. As those of you know that listen regularly to the GAP podcast series, we are about shining the light on issues of black infant mortality and issues of maternal health. But we've taken a much broader perspective to look at issues that are impacting black families around the nation. So today we have in studio Sharon Granberry, who is the founder and executive director of the Granberry Intervention Foundation, which has offices all throughout the state of Texas, and Keisha Bell, her office manager at the Fort Worth office. So to kick things off, Sharon, we're going to start with you. Just kind of give us your thoughts on what you heard me say at the beginning, the fact that there's 443,000 kids in this country that are in foster care. And in the state of Texas, there's almost 30,000 as of January 30th. Just give me, give us kind of the state of foster care in America today. First of all, I'd like to thank you guys for having us in studio today. And uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, There are over 30,000 children in the state of Texas in the foster care system. The overall number of the United States is approximately exactly what you said, you know, over nearly a half a million children in foster care. My thoughts on that uh, is is the reason we do what we do as far as, you know, trying to make a difference, being a part of the solution. The problem exists. Somebody got to do something. Well, let's let's talk about the let's talk about the mission and purpose of the Granberry Intervention Foundation. Give our listeners a feel for what it is that that you do, and the value really that that TGIF kind of brings to alleviating and addressing this entire entire problem that we're speaking about. The Granberry Intervention Foundation was established in two thousand three for the purpose that we stated earlier about the mass numbers of children in foster care. During my journey or my experience in working with the child welfare system, working with CPS, working with group homes, I've noticed that the complexion of our foster care system 
it was, was changing to more minority children. We established the, the Granberry Intervention Foundation not so much to deal with just minority children, but to deal with all children, but to recruit families of all race, creeds, and colors to address those needs of all these of the various children that are being placed in the system. So our mission is to provide safe, uh, nurturing homes for children who've been abused and neglected. When foster parents seeking out a place to foster or work with children, and sometimes people have preferences of the type of children that they want to foster, my response to them is I cannot guarantee you in this particular race, in a particular you know, hairstyle or anything like that, all I can get, you know, guarantee that the children that we have and we'll be placing in your home have been abused and neglected and need your loving care. Wow. Okay. Keisha, what's your what's your take on that? What's your what are your thoughts about what about what Sharon just had to say? Well, when I entered into the the Greenberry Intervention Foundation, all I knew was you know, foster care, abuse kids, but there's a whole different world inside once you realize these kids have been neglected. Some of them just need some love, some nurturing, some care, um, but there's a need. There's a big, big need that a lot of people don't realize that's out there. There's a need for foster families, uh, mothers, fathers, single parents, all creeds, colors. There's a need for someone to take care of these kids, bring them in your home, love them, provide them a safe place, food to eat, and, and, you know, everyday activities. What is, from the journey that you guys have been on, what is the kind of trauma or grief or emotional baggage that the children that you encounter are are, are bringing to the table the ones that you're trying to place? What kind of trauma is, is coming along with them? It kind of reminds me, it, when I think about the trauma the children are feeling, it's like you're a victim of a crime, and then the police come, and they take you to jail. You know, and, but you're the victim. So that's how these children feel. So a lot of them suffer or, 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 or do not tell about the abuse because of the rumors and the things that they've heard about the foster care system, and they don't want to be taken away from their parents. They love the parents unconditionally. If there's any, if anybody ever has agape love, it's these children for their parents. But again, when they're removed from, the, from their homes and taken to a foster care system, placed with strangers that they don't know and don't know them, it, it, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's terrifying. We try to place children in homes that are some type, you know, have some type of relation. For example, if we have Hispanic-speaking speak, you know, children, we try to find Spanish-speaking homes so those children are not just thrown into a system and cannot communicate. So that's just kind of one issue. But the children are trauma, very, very traumatized because they're the victims, but again, they're the ones that are being removed or taken away, and they did nothing. But again, they still love the parents, and that's that's traumatizing as well. So, <clears throat> what happens then, Sharon and Keisha, when you are a child? And I read somewhere that the average age that a child enters, enters into foster care is typically eight. Have you found that to be consistent? Found that number to be consistent with your experience, or is it different? 
it has changed over the years. Back in the 80s, when I started working with Child Protective Services, very seldom was a newborn removed from the parent, and they would try to work with the parent and establish some type of bond. When I started the Granberry Intervention Foundation in 2003, the first child I placed was under the age of one. So they're removing more newborns, and it's because it's related to that infant immortality series that you were doing, a lot of... You know, Children were born with drugs in their systems, and so they're being removed at an early age. So I would say the average age is now about three in the state of Texas. There are a lot of little, and the sibling groups have increased from one or two. I've seen as many, you know, I've gotten requests to place as many as 12 children in one family. So the average size, you know, I guess is probably about five, four to five children per family, you know, sibling group. So is it the goal then, let me make sure that, that I understand, is it the goal to keep the sibling groups together? Is that kind of the ideology that you're working under? Is exactly. The, okay. And what's the, so what's the thinking really behind that, behind wanting to keep the sibling, sibling groups t together? What's the underlying the underlying um, philosophy, philosophy regarding that? Like I stated earlier, concerning the trauma, to, you know, how, how traumatizing it is to be removed from your family, it's more traumatizing to be separated once you're removed from your mom and your, you know, your father or your grandparents or whatever family member you were residing with. But then in addition to that, to be separated from the only other relations that you may have, which are your siblings, Further traumatizes children. You want to be comfortable. Yes. You know somebody that looks like you, somebody you grew up with. So you know somebody you're familiar with. You want to be comfortable. You want to keep the kids as comfortable as they can. Plus, it's a state. The it's a uh, uh, it's a law. Well, well, not a law, maybe, but it's in one of the Senate bills. I can't quote it to you right now, but. Uh, you know, to place the children in close proximity because they do have, parents still have rights even though the children have been removed so they can still have the right to visit with their children and try to regain custody. But in addition to that, they have a right to, uh, uh, they want the children placed together so they can continue that bond on a daily basis. And we've experienced problems where maybe an older sibling is the caregiver and they have trouble relinquishing that role even though they're in foster care. So if it's a sibling, if it's a 10-year-old girl and, you know, a 4-year-old is a 2-year-old is the youngest, that 10-year-old has, you know, acted as the parent in the home and continues to act, you know, in that capacity even though there is a nurturing, caring parent in the home to care for the children. Okay, I want to just stop you right there and go back and just ask a clarifying question. Are are you saying that there that there are homes where where a a ten year old older sibling has to assume the parent responsibility in the home for some myriad of reasons of what's going on? Is that kind of what you're saying to That's me? That's common. That's a common thing right now. It's common. It's common. It's a common thing. Most kids. Parents work overnight. You could be 12, 10. Some of them even young as eight. They take care of the little kids while the parents are away. But the children we're dealing with, you know, most of the, 
the biggest reason, you know, that uh, most children, that's uh, the biggest one, the frequent reason that the children come into care is because of drug usage. You know, the parents are hooked on drugs or got some drug addiction or whatever. And so they have drug addiction. They got multiple children. The, the children, they take care of the other children. They neglect them, change yeah. no diapers. They're not eating it. They're, if your mother's drunk, if your mother's high, she leaves you, may leave with a boyfriend, anything. Hustle, food, you know, mm -hmm. they got to make sure that, you know, not only that they eat, and they, you know, they take care of the siblings. And that's another reason they want to keep them together so they can just, you know, continue to bond. But it's like I said, it's hard to help that older sibling understand that you don't have to assume that role anymore. You have a caregiver, a responsible caregiver, which they're not accustomed to. That's why they're coming into the system. So you have a situation where if you have a child, love and protection and continuity of experience is something that, that every kid deserves. Every parent should be providing that. And what you're saying is that a lot of the kids that you're encountering, there's, there's no love, there's no protection, and there's no real constant or no real positive constant in, 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 their, in, in their life. And so what's the, I mean, what's the long-term prognosis for, for, for kids like this? How do you prevent them from just becoming less than what they probably could become otherwise? Yeah, these parents, a lot of the parents that, you know, that the, the children are, you know, placed in the system, they have placed their, and most of the time, like I say, it's, it's, it's a lot of times, I don't know the, the, the percentage of drug, you know, um, parents or whatever, but most of them are drug-related. You know, most of the abuse cases are, you know, due to drug, you know, the drug epidemic. And when I say they love the way they love, they care about their children, but they care about their, their habit. And so, and the, the children make the adjustment or whatever, you know, if they come into care for, you know, may, maybe a domestic, you know, situation, domestic violence situation where the children had to be removed or, you know, a myriad of reasons, but they've all been neglected or abused in some kind of way. But I, I cannot, in good faith, with my experience, say that it's because the parents didn't love them. It's just they loved them the way they loved them. And that wasn't always appropriate it, it wasn't appropriate and I can't even say it wasn't always it wasn't appropriate and that's why they became they became temporary wards of the state we're about to go to break listen to this very brief word from one of our sponsors and stay with us we'll be back momentarily with the gap podcast series this is Nikia Lawson, and in today's segment of Let's Doula This on the Gap Podcast Series, we're going to be talking about what is a doula. The idea around doula care stems from the concept of having a professional support person, a part of the birth experience with the family before, during, and after the actual birth of the baby. So doulas provide non-clinical emotional 
educational, and physical comfort so that the family has a well-rounded approach to how they want to embrace their birth experience. The doula's role and responsibility is to help facilitate and help navigate the experience so that the family is satisfied by the birth outcome. So we're not there to necessarily um, make an outcome happen or to guarantee a specific type of birth experience, but really to help the family be prepared through education, through information, as well as providing some actual physical comfort. So when a family decides that they want to have a doula for their birth experience, they literally will interview a professional. That professional will sit down with them, go over a plan for their birth experience, and then help them navigate that depending on who they choose as their clinical provider. So the difference between the midwife and the doula is that the midwife is actually the clinician. The midwife has the skills and the capacity to provide clinical support for the family so that they can welcome their baby very healthy and have a positive birth outcome. That's the ultimate goal when it comes to that clinical care that the family is receiving from the midwife. With the doula, it's more emotional support, there's more educational support, and then there is some physical comfort measures. So doulas have gone to learn very specific skills through training, through reading, through interaction, through engagement, through networking within their communities to obtain skills to work and navigate with the family together in tandem a very specific birth goal that the family decides. So the doula doesn't go in and make decisions, nor does the doula go in and speak on behalf of the family. The family guides the journey. The doula helps navigate to facilitate a very calm and embrace a beautiful birth experience. So understanding the role of the doula helps us all understand how positive these birth outcomes can be. So it's so exciting to share with you all what a doula is and what a doula does so that you know when you're getting ready to hire a doula, what questions you can be asking, how you can engage with them, and what that's going to look like for your birth experience. Just want to let you know that in the doula spirit, doulas make a difference. This is Nakia Lawson on Let's Doula This on the Gap podcast series. You're listening to the Gap podcast series, and in today's episode, we have in studio Sharon Granberry, the executive director and founder of the Granberry Intervention Found Foundation, and Keisha Bell, who's the office manager there here at the Fort Worth location. And we've been having just an extraordinary discussion about kind of the nature of foster care and adoption in America and more specifically here in Texas. So from, from you guys' collective experience, what demographic of, of child or what demographic of children are the most complex to be able to, for you to place into adoptive families? What's difficult? be the age the the older the the older the older children are harder to place 13 and up 13 and up is almost impossible really <laughs> almost impossible but nobody that people fear you know bringing teenagers into their home and because of the behaviors the learned behaviors the environmental ex- you know experiences they have etc so they, they, they come with a lot of baggage. Most people want smaller children or babies 
And then you have that group of you know, families, foster families who prefer school-aged children. So when we go out and recruit, we need foster parents. We need foster parents desperately. And as we recruit foster parents, you know, the state has a list of children that are hard to place. And when we go to meetings you know, on a quarterly, monthly basis, please, they ask us, please look for families that are willing to take, as Ms. Keisha said, teenagers, males, uh, this behavior, they, you know, they describe a gamut of behaviors that most people do not want to deal with, you know, on a daily basis. So we're looking for unique, we're looking for foster parents overall, but we, we need special people that are, will understand that these children, like I said, come with baggage. These children have been abused and neglected. They are a product of their environment, which was not a good thing. That's why they're in the foster care system. Let me also speak about the rejection when you asked about how they being traumatized. When I first started, I remember training the families and using an example about how you, especially with adoption, how you you know, dress up and get pretty and think you're ready for a date, you know, a woman get ready for a date, and then the man opens the door and said, oh, not you. And then the next one comes, and you get dressed up, and you're ready, and he said, not you. You know, by the time that third one, you know, you get to, then you mad. You don't, you got an attitude. You know, you're ready to be rejected. And that's how these children feel when they're placed in a home, and then they're asked to be moved, you know, removed. They've already been removed from their biological parents. Then they go to a foster home, and a foster parent decides, I cannot, I no longer want to parent this child. Rejection number two. Then they're placed in another foster home, and so on and so forth. So the state is limited and asked, you know, there's a history of children. Some children have had up to 50 moves in their lifetime from different foster homes. And so the state has mandated that, you know, you try to limit the number of moves because it is traumatizing. The rejection is real. And none of us want to be rejected. And whatever the reason the foster parents are saying, you know, this child needs to be removed, it's still, in their mind, I did something wrong. You know, I, my, my, you know I'm not with my biological parents. This per person doesn't want me. That person doesn't want me. It's the feeling of rejection. And nobody wants to feel like that. And, that, and it does cause a reaction, most of the time negative, with their personality and with their behaviors. Yeah. It's kind of like, let me go ahead and get put out. Let me go ahead and you know do something to get kicked out because you're going to kick me out anyway. And I've heard them say that. What's your take on that, Keisha? Uh, the same thing. A lot of trust. Kids, they have the trust issue even at a small age, like you said, the age of eight, because they have been removed. Some of them have been removed from their uh, their uh, families, like they could be with their aunts. So their aunts don't want to deal with, you know, the issues they have going on. But when these kids have been abused, neglected, they have these, you know, they have insecurities. And they, they try people to see, okay, is this per does this person love me? Is this person going to be the same like my mom did? Even though my mom loved me, she made a mistake. So let me see if this person is going to do this. And then when they do it, they go, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because they were just trying to see what your reaction would be. It's, it's real disheartening, but it, it's, it's, I mean, it's our overall truth in, in the foster care business. We've seen, uh, I think, in the last couple of weeks, I think one kid, a, a kid group got moved like three times. 
And these kids were like five and six because of the behavior problems coming out of their home, like drug-related, their parents on drugs, things like that. But these kids, like Ms. Greenberry said, there's nothing that they did, but they became the victim. So from, from, your, from the depth of your collective experience, experiences, what are the top two or three qualities or values or character traits that you look for in a potential foster parent? What makes an ideal foster parent from your collective experience? Go ahead, Keisha. Um, someone that, that loves kids. First of all, you can't come in and say, I want to be a foster parent and you don't like kids. You gotta, you gotta like kids. Um, someone that, that, you know, that's been around kids, had some kids. We, I mean, there are some that never had kids, so, you know, we can't say that. But someone that's loving, caring, um, that has a positive attitude, you just, you know, that has a need to take care of themselves, you know, it, you know and, and that can provide for the kids too. So, like, the stipend is not, you know, providing for you, but you can provide for the kids if you didn't have it. Um, so we look at that, you know, make sure you haven't been any violence, no neglect, abuse, you know, things like that, background checks. Someone comes from a good home. We, that's what we kind of want to look for. Someone a, a positive attitude. Okay. All right. Uh, Sharon, what, you know, you've been in this game for like, you know, 30 years, even though you look like you're only 30 years old. I know you've been in this game for 30 years. She's the OG of foster care. She's the OG of foster care. Sharon Granberry, OG of foster care. Regulating the foster care world from Fort Worth, Texas. That's right. Actually, like like I said, I've been in the career to tell me 30 years old. This stranger said that because I, when I was 30 years old, that's when I started working with CPS. And, you know, I can't tell you how long ago that was, but... (laughs) What Keisha was saying about foster parents, you know, that was a real nice, you know, package <laughs> answer. But we take people, and people think that they have to That's right. uh, look a certain way, have certain assets, uh, live a certain place. That's not the that's not the case. Like she said, you do have to, you know, care about children. You do have to be, you know, you, you will have to be able to provide for the children in lieu of the reimbursement or the subsidy that you will receive for, you know, accepting these children. So we are looking for we the ideal foster parent is somebody that more than care about children, but there's really you can understand the trauma that these children have gone through. As I was alluding to earlier about the children being victim and re-victimized, when you get foster parents that I just want a little girl and they have the the mentality that, that if I do this and do that, then they'll respond a certain way, that's not a good foster parent. They expect you to, some foster parents expect you to show appreciation just because I combed your hair or because I gave you a place to stay. They don't care about that. They used to, a lot of these children, they used to growing up the the rough side of the mountain. So you have to have, the ideal foster parent is somebody who will Understand that you have baggage. Try to understand your baggage and help you unpack your bags. Say that one more time. I want to make sure we got those three. That's brilliant what you just said. Give me those three things again. 
we need a foster parents that will understand that you're coming with baggage. So number one, it's the direct, it's the the understanding. It's the you're in the middle place where you realize that this child is arriving in your home with baggage. Okay, that's number one. Okay, number two. Take the time to understand the baggage. You know, I mean, what I mean by that, if they come in from a uh, a house that had methamphetamines in it, you know, they're going to have certain issues or if they were born with cocaine in their system, that's going to cause certain behaviors in, you know, with this child. So you need to try to understand you, this is what the issue was. Because we tell the foster parents before we even place of children there that this child is coming into care because of X, Y, Z. So you have an idea, overview, as much as CPS knows, as much as I know, we share it with the foster parent. So when this child comes in your home and starts misbehaving, your first response should not be, oh, I can't handle this, he has to go. So even though, as Keisha said, you want somebody who care about children and love children, it's really more than that when you're talking about foster children. Because they come in, again, with baggage. You need to try to understand their baggage and be willing to help them unpack their baggage. In other words, deal with the baggage, not reject the child. So let's, and I know that's something during break, you know, Sharon, you and I, or the three of us actually talked about during break. How significant or how severe is this this lack this this dearth of, of of foster families that you can call on? I mean, how severe is this problem? It's very severe because of the Keisha talked about the phone calls because she works you know the front desk and she receives a lot of, you know she answers the phone, but in addition to the phone calls, we get I get emails, and we get emails from throughout the state requesting homes for you know foster homes for these children. And sometimes the the state office, Austin, the people in Austin, they require us to respond yay or nay. A lot of times if you don't have a home, you just don't reply. But sometimes the the need is so critical that they said, we need to hear from you. And if they don't hear from you, they send us another email saying, you didn't reply. Do you have a home? That makes you check your list twice. You know, they say, you know, you're checking your list and checking it twice to make sure. A lot of times, you know, we have foster parents that say, I only want babies, but I'll call them and ask them, can you please help out? This is this child's situation. What do you think? So for those folks that are considering being a foster parent or considering adoption, what would be your message to them? We need you. That's, I mean, we need you. The children need you. Um, like I said, it's, it's more than just caring about children. It's more, you know, even the children that come with the basic needs, they still need something extra from foster parents. You know, we need you, people of every culture. Um, I pass our cards all across the state. So anything uh, anything else the two of you want to add that maybe I haven't asked or anything that, that we haven't covered in this amazing conversation we've had today? Is there anything else you want to say about TGIF or about the world, the importance of what you do or anything? I'll just give you guys the mic. 
You can do whatever you want. April is National Abuse Neglect Awareness Month. So I want people to know that you can, it's, it's, it's kind of like any other awareness month. It's, the, the, the issue is heightened, and that's the month of April. So uh, for our listeners that are interested in learning more about the Granberry Intervention Foundation or they want to become foster parents or they want to adopt, Keisha, what should they do? You can actually log on to our website, www.tgifoundation.org, or contact our toll-free number at 855-948-0500. We also have a Beaumont office, which is that telephone number is 409-892-1808, Houston, 832-831-5856, and our Fort Worth office, which is 817 817- Five six one four one four nine. All right, that is outstanding. You have been listening to the Gap Podcast series. My name is Lindell Singleton, and I've been in studio today with Keisha and Sharon of the Granberry Intervention Foundation. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It was indeed my pleasure. Thank you for listening. The Gap Podcast Series is produced by Limeville Entertainment in association with Sagasse Media Group. Also, be sure to visit us online at 365plusone.org. That's 365plusone.org.